Hey, you're listening to the Seven Hills Church Podcast. If you want to learn more about the church, including upcoming service times at a location near you, visit us online at sevenhillschurch.tv. We hope this message helps you win the day. Second Samuel chapter six, second Samuel chapter six. Let's look at verse 13. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that David sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might and he was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of a trumpet. Now, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window, saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Let's drop down to verse 20. And David returned to bless his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how glorious, she's mocking him. This is a sarcastic moment. How glorious is the king of Israel today, uncovering himself in the eyes of maids and servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord and I will be even more undignified than this and I will be humble in my own sight But as for the maidservant of you who you have spoken by them, I will be held in honor. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. I want to talk to you on that phrase from verse 22. I will be even more undignified than this, and I'll stay humble in my own sight. There's some powerful lessons on worship in this this story that we just read to back up just a little bit. Um, from this particular story. Many of you would know that King Saul had uh, been after David, had been trying to kill him for many, many years. And so David has lived on the run for most of his adult life in caves, hiding wherever he possibly can to escape the jealousy of King Saul. And so his running years are over. His hiding years are behind him. He is now the king over Israel, and it's his day to be anointed as king. 20 years God has been working on David. For 20 years, God's made the man that he can position as the king over the nation of Israel. Before we get back to this day that we're going to talk about, I want to go back a little bit and talk to you about the condition of David's heart and his mind before this moment. Because it begins to teach us a little bit more about the importance of of worship, uh, that worship is not a man idea, it's not man's idea, it's not a religious idea, it's not a church's uh, concept or style. Worship, um, as given to us in Scripture, as commanded by God, is very particular. And it's not to be gone at casually, it's not to be gone at uh, just with your own way, you're to go at it the way God teaches us to go at it. God laid out how he desires to be worshiped for each of us. So David, before this day, there's, 
there's this moment where he's running from Saul. He has nowhere to turn, nowhere to go. All of his hiding places have been discovered. And so he goes across to Philistine territory, which is a big surprise to me because David, of course, killed Goliath, the Philistine champion. Israel would have defeated the Philistines on many occasions. And David was known as the great warrior, as a great enemy of the Philistines. So when David goes across the border and they see him, his only chance of staying alive is he begins to act like he's lost his mind. He begins to act like he's going insane. And because of this, the Philistines, who are known enemy to Israel, a known enemy to David, they drop their guard and they let David stay in Philistine territory because they thought that he had lost his mind. And so there David lives for many years. And while he's there, like any of us would fall into this, the people he hangs out with begin to influence him. The, the places he goes, um, his relationships begin to rub off on him. Kind of like when I went to Bible college many, 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 many years ago, my roommate in school was from the deep, deep, deep south. First time I called my dad after living with this guy for some time, my dad said, what is wrong with the way you're talking? I'm like, what do you, what do you mean? And he's like, you're, you're acting like you're from the South. And I'm like, well, it's probably just my roommate and I'm picking up on his accent. Have you ever met anybody that moved to another country, maybe Australia? They lived their whole life here, moved to Australia for two years, but they still are acting like they're from Australia because the accent rubs off. And David is in that kind of a place where their ways the, the, their dialect, their accent, their thinking have affected David and begins their way of thinking begins to take over. So David is being influenced by their ways of thinking. He goes into this place where, where he's been influenced by the Philistine way of thinking, but he's supposed to be leading God's people. Their way of looking at the things of God have rubbed off on him. And so he's now king. It's his coronation day. He walks into Jerusalem and he recognizes that the Ark of the Covenant has been missing, which is a piece of furniture that represents Jesus. Really, the Ark of the Covenant represents the, the fullness of God's presence the Ark of the Covenant was a wooden box. Inside of the wooden box would have been the Ten Commandments. It would have been manna in a small little pot or jar. And you would have had Aaron's rod that budded. The Ten Commandments speak of moral clarity, absolute truth, that God is the author of, of truth and standards in all and every area pertaining to life and godliness. So God in that box, put truth. In that box, he put Aaron's rod that budded, which represents the resurrection and the life. And in that box was the manna that represents God's daily supernatural provision to his people. That piece of furniture is a shadow or a picture of Jesus because we would know when Jesus came that he had absolute truth in him. He is the resurrection, he is the life, and he is our supernatural provision, not occasionally, but daily. 
Also, over the Ark of the Covenant would have been the Shekinah glory or the full presence of God. And so when David notices that it's missing, he does some research and comes to find out that for 70 years, the Ark of the Covenant had been gone. What happened was when Israel was fighting the Philistines, the Philistines got tired of losing and they heard that the reason that Israel was winning was because of their God, because of the God of Israel. So in their mind, they think if we can go take this God box, then the God that's on Israel's side will be on our side. So now when we go to fight, that God will be on our side. But they didn't want to worship that God. They just wanted the blessings and the benefits that came along with with the, the victories that would come along with the God of Israel. So they take the Ark of the Covenant, they put it in one of their temples to the God called Dagon. It was a big statue of, of, of a person. I think it was like a half fish, half man kind of God. And one night they put the Ark of the Covenant in there. The next morning they walk into the temple and that massive statue had fallen on the ground and its head had broken off. And so they go in and they lift the statue back up and they put it into place. The next morning they come back in and sure enough, the statue had fallen again. This time its hands have fallen off. And so they prop it up against. Now, now all they really have is a headless, handless God. They kind of got like this torso religion, if you will. The, the, to them, they don't mind God just as long as he's headless and handless. You know, they, people don't like when you start talking about Jesus is the head of his church. Jesus is. Which means he has full and absolute authority over his church. My opinion don't matter and your opinion does not matter. He is the head of the church. But we don't like authority. We don't like the, the, the idea that we're to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We're to be under the headship of Jesus Christ. That he is Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. And so we come up underneath that lordship. I'm submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. I'm surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That is to have him as the head of the church. But a lot of people also don't just want God to be a headless, or church to be headless. We want it to be handless. Don't ask me to serve. Don't ask me to give. Don't ask me to get involved. Don't ask me to sacrifice. Don't ask me to do anything because we like that torso religion. And they prop that God up over and over and over and over again. But God did not send his son, Jesus, to establish a torso church. He sent his son, Jesus, to establish a church that was under the full authority of Jesus Christ and a church that also understood as he is our head, so we are to be his hands and his feet in the earth. But the Philistines, they didn't like this kind of preaching. They didn't like these sermons. They didn't like it. So they took the Ark of the Covenant and they moved it out of the Temple of Dagon so they could have their torso church. They took it to a man's house by the name of Abinadab. Abinadab had two sons. One of them was Uzzah. And when they moved the ark from the temple of Dagon to Abinadab's house, they put it on a cart that the Philistines had designed specifically for the moving of the ark of the covenant. And for 70 years, it stays at Abinadab's house. 70 years, there's the ark. Now, David 
is king. It's his day, his first day. He's going to take the throne. And he doesn't want to lead the nation without making sure that the Ark of the Covenant or the full presence of God is back with Israel. And so he sends 30,000 mighty men to go and retrieve the Ark of the Covenant. With that, 30,000 men were singers and musicians. They were rejoicing, shouting, clapping, praising God with all of their might, with all of their hearts. And so they take the ark. Once they get to Abinadab's house, they take it and they put it on this cart and they start to move it back to Jerusalem. But they had forgotten that that was the Philistines' way of dealing with the presence of God. That was not God's way. God had given clear instruction that when you move the Ark of the Covenant, it's not to be transported on a cart. It's to be transported on the shoulder of worshiping priest. And so they take the Ark of the Covenant, they put it on this cart. It's on its way back to Jerusalem. As it's going down the road, it hits a pothole and the ark begins to fall off of the cart. Uzzah reaches up and touches it and immediately drops dead. Well, the music and the worship and the singing suddenly stops. All terror begins to strike the people that were there as they begin to think to themselves, how is it that a man that was just trying to do the right thing and now he's dead. Why would God judge that kind of a, of an action? Why would God not be okay with that kind of an action? Why, when we're here celebrating and praising God, why, why is it that, that something so tragic could happen? And it's God beginning to teach people that you just don't go at worship any way you want. There is a seriousness to worship. There is a sober reality that comes when we worship. He is merciful and he's mighty. And, and with, with the enjoyment of his mercy, I cannot forget about he's also a mighty God. And he's also a God I'm to be reverent to. We sang it, that, that, that I have to defend this holy ground. We're not speaking of, a, of this area over here or that area over there. The Bible says that God took the dust of the ground and he formed Adam and breathed into him the breath of life. So that dirt is me and you. That ground is me and you. I must defend this holy ground. I, I can't worry about that ground and that ground, but I can tell you one thing. God wants me to guard this ground. So David teaches us a few lessons here that we'll go through quickly. Number one, that he could not discern the ways of God from the ways of the world. He learned the cart method from the Philistines. He started thinking like the Philistines. He started talking like the Philistines. And he started thinking that maybe I could bring about God's will with a worldly mindset. And so David learns real quick that you cannot bring a worldly cultural mindset into kingdom work. The kingdom of God is always opposite of the world. If the world is saying one thing, know that more than likely, especially when they love to talk about Jesus. You know, it's amazing how the world tries to teach the church about Jesus all the time. Isn't that amazing? And it's always a Jesus that fits their narrative, is it not? But it's not the Jesus that we read about in the scriptures. It's not the Jesus we read about. Maybe one random scripture's thrown at it. But if you pulled together the spirit of scripture and the spirit of Jesus, they're normally a million miles away. But then church people learn about Jesus from the world. 
Then they bring that Jesus into church and he's not the Jesus of the Bible. He's not the Jesus that we see God. He's this Jesus we just created and made up in our own head. And then we get surprised when somebody talks about Jesus from the Bible. We think it's offensive when they start because we learned about Jesus from the culture. When God never told us to learn from the world about him, we learn from his word and from his people. That's how we learn about it. So God's way is not on a man's heart, on a man's cart made by man's hands. The cart method was never God's method. So God said, no, that's not my way. Uzzah falls dead. No, that's not how God wants to do things. There is a godly way and there is a worldly way. And God wants to distinguish between the two. There is a clear line drawn in scripture and in worship. We just don't go at things the way that the world does. So David in fear takes the Ark of the Covenant from Abinadab's house. He sends it to Obed-Edom's house. And there he begins to fast and pray and seek God for 90 days. 90 days every day he's fully focused on trying to understand where did I go wrong? Where did I miss it? How did I not understand what it is that God wanted? I was trying to do a good thing, trying to do the right thing. Why did things go bad? It's 90 days. This isn't casual, just attend church. This isn't spectating. That's why we go into seasons where we call you to seek God specifically over a, a extended period of time because we all have a tendency to let the world rub off on us. We all have a tendency to allow the Philistine way of thinking to get a hold of us. And so we have to go through seasons of focusing on seeking God for ourselves so we can know what he wants for, from us. Number two, David realized that you can't have God's presence without having God's heart. We love God's presence because of what we believe it will do for us. But God does not see worship as something that he just uses to bless us. God uses worship to change us. And real worship isn't experienced just because you want God to bless you. Real worship is experienced when you say, God, change me, change my life, change my mind, change my heart. I don't wanna leave here the same way, transform me. And when that's your heart in worship, you're not just singing like you love God, you're actually living like you love him too. Number three, they were around the ark, but God wanted them under the ark. See, a lot of people like to be around the presence of God, but not under his presence. Talking about the, the weight of carrying God's presence. Jesus said it like this, that the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Not around me, it's upon me. What was he saying? That the, the, the leadership of the Holy Spirit is on my life. When the Holy Spirit moves this way, I go that way. When he says go there, I go there. When he says do this, I do that. When he says be this, I'm gonna be that. I'm just following his leadership wherever he wants to go because God never designed the ark to be carried on a cart. He designed it to be carried in my heart. And so the way that God instructed them to do this was take this wooden God box, put a gold ring on each corner, Four corners, so four gold rings. Take a wooden rod through those gold rings and then put a worshiping priest on each corner, have them all lift it together and set it on their shoulders. And I want you to, I want you to see the imagery here that 
The people who are carrying the ark, they feel the weight of it. They're carrying it. It, it, it makes their heart beat up a, beat a little bit faster. It makes their, their brow start to sweat. It, they have to work. They have to communicate. They have to move together. If one priest moves this way and the other one moves that way, that's not how it works. So they have to, they have to be in sync. They have to be in cadence. They have to be coordinated. They have to work together. They have to be in unity. They have to be in harmony. They have to have that, that togetherness. And that's the way God wanted the Ark of the Covenant to be carried. He wanted it to be carried on worshiping priests shoulders so we would feel it think about it like this that God didn't want the presence of God he didn't want worship to be slick and easy he didn't want it to be a car witty invention by man he wanted us to be under it he wanted us to feel the weight of it he didn't want us to see it as this thing that we do and we just kind of play God games for like an hour and then go back to, no he wanted us to feel the burden of it. He wanted us to feel the overwhelming weight of the presence of God and carrying him into a lost and dying world. Number four, David would teach us that pride will cost you more than praise. Every six steps, the Bible says David would stop and he would sacrifice a lamb and he would worship. The entire way from Obed-Edom's house back to Jerusalem Every six steps, they would stop everything. They would sacrifice a lamb and they would worship. So worship is a sacrifice. Praise is a sacrifice, which, which helps us know that this isn't just singing songs. Every six steps, he stops everything in his life and he sacrifices he stops everything in his life and he worships. He, he'll only go so far before he says, okay, I can't go any further before I spend some time in his presence. And when you really get a hold of worship, you realize that, that what we experience here on a Sunday is only part of it because the true sacrifice of praise shows up in how you live your life. It shows up in how you treat people. It shows up in how you treat yourself, how you treat that spouse, how you treat those children, how you treat those parents, how you treat your enemies, how you treat those who hate you, curse you, use you. Worship shows up in those places too. And so David got so overwhelmed when he saw the Ark of the Covenant not on a piece of machinery, but on the shoulders of worshiping priests, their hearts beating, sweat pouring down their face, carrying God's presence, feeling the weight of God's presence. David was so moved by this. He was so impacted by that moment, by that image, that he begins to dance and shout and rejoice in such a way that the Bible says it was with all of his might. So he's dancing, he's praising God. And the Bible says he takes that kingly robe off, which represents his position in the community. It represents his reputation, his image. But he gives God a sacrifice of praise because he doesn't care what people think. 
doesn't care what his position is, doesn't care what the image is, doesn't care what his reputation is. At that moment, he looks at Michael and he actually tells her, listen, I'll keep singing my songs to God. And oh yeah, by the way, I'll be even more undignified than this because I didn't do this for you. I wasn't thinking about you. I wasn't thinking about anybody else. I was thinking about the God who put me in this position and that God deserved me to be humble and come to him with worship. But the Bible says that Michael despised David in her heart, that she was embarrassed, that she was angry because he was embarrassing her. And the Bible says God saw her pride and her womb was cursed. God said, no more children. You'll never have children. Because pride will cost you more than praise. A lot of things will never be birthed in your life because pride has such a grip on you. One of the quickest ways to kill a church is to think that we have a cart method. We have a a way that the world will be okay with what we do. And we we wanna make sure that the world is okay with the way we worship. So let's not worship too much. Praise when it's alive in a church. That church can reproduce. The church has offspring. That church can grow. The family of God can grow. The family of God can move forward because when you praise God, that's exactly what happens. The lost get saved. The addicted get set free. The Bible says the prison doors open. The chains fall off. Pride in the Webster's Dictionary is a protection of one's image and reputation. So you always know if pride is slipping into your life, it's because you're embarrassed or you feel even the slight, the slightest idea of worship makes you uncomfortable, makes you feel like, I don't know, I don't, what are people gonna think? I just need you to know that when that feeling comes, that pride comes in your life, that's the moment you say, I don't care what my pride says. I know who my God is and I know what he can do for me. And I'm not letting pride cost me the fruitfulness that God has for my future. And so pride criticizes worship. When pride walks in, God walks out. Praising God does not hurt his kingdom. It does not hurt a church. Pride does. Worrying about my image and reputation does. And so we've been asking God, renew a spirit of worship in our church. Renew a spirit of worship in my own life. I just want to fall in love with worshiping God. Fall in love with just singing to him, talking with him, spending time with him, whether it's here on a Sunday or Monday or whenever it was, just renew a spirit of worship in every single one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you enjoyed today's message, be sure to hit the subscribe button. And if you want to experience daily content, messages, and inspiration, go ahead and sign up for Daily Bread with PM 
by visiting sevenhillschurch.tv forward slash DBPM. Thanks for listening to the Seven Hills Church podcast.